Good evening and welcome to another edition of the Brown Bag. Today we are continuing the API series that we've begun and we're going to continue this today talking about how to use RESTful APIs. So the last episode we talked about what it is a RESTful API, so we're just continuing that same conversation today. Feel free to join in on the conversation. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm here. You can always tweet at me, uh, you know, or Tom. He is a, our co lovely co-host. Uh, or, of course, tweet at V Brown Bag, um, you know, and use the hashtag V Brown Bag. Uh, we've got this episode happening this week, and then we're going to continue our API series for the next few weeks on Wednesday night. Uh, also, tune in to the other channels that are geographically appropriate for you. Tonight, we have a special guest that's going to be presenting with us. Um, I'm privileged to say that I actually work with Peter. Uh, so Peter Milanese, he's going to be talking today about using RESTful APIs. Are you ready to blow our minds, Peter? Absolutely. All right. So you are now the presenter. Take cool. it away, Let me figure this stuff out really quickly. Yeah, close all those inappropriate uh, windows. Yeah, yeah. I, I tried to do a little cleanup on the laptop prior. Can you see my screen now? Yes. Awesome. Um, so thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate you you, you taking time to, to log in and kind of hear what I have to say about, um, in a general sense, uh, using a RESTful API, what, what it can bring to the table, and uh, get get some actual uh, code and, and, and looking at demonstrations of how we can easier facilitate functionality in various aspects of uh, the gear that we manage, the the infrastructure that we uh, that we architect, that type of thing. Uh, my name again is Pete Milanese. I've been with Rubrik since January of this year. Uh, prior to that, I had the privilege of leading the systems engineering engineering team at the New York Public Library. Uh, I, I held that position for um, about 15 years, um, and and then I kind of just uh, I felt for for no other reason than I want to do something new and exciting. Um, and and uh, Rubrik happened to feel the same about me, uh, and and now I have the privilege of, of of working here and evangelizing and helping organizations to uh, to see the art of the possible as far as integration uh, with our particular solution as well as others, and and we'll talk about that a little bit further uh, down the deck. Cool. So there are three main topics that I want to cover. Um, over the course of this conversation, um, and all obviously revolving around the RESTful API, but how do we get basic things done, right? How do, how do we log in? Um, most APIs out there, most RESTful APIs specifically, will, will require some sort of authentication. Uh, it, it doesn't have to require some sort of authentication. There's certainly public domain uh, APIs available. Um, museums, libraries, that kind of thing, that might not require author authentication to, to access the data sets. Um, certainly any on-premises, and I think I got that right, Rebecca, um, any, any on-premises solutions would, uh, would be more tied down and require some form of authentication. So we'll touch upon these two. Um, we'll touch upon basic authentication, and we'll, we'll touch upon uh, token authentication, um, and we'll kind of cite the differences between them. Obviously, there are other forms of authentication that we won't touch upon in this in, in this slide deck, um, but but there are other ones to be aware of. Uh, obviously, the, the the plethora of versions of OAuth are something to be aware of, and something that third-party applications uh, tend to offer is API key. 
um, which, which is another form. Um, all of them are methods to identify yourself. I apologize for that uh, transition issue. We'll just build it out. Um, so the second thing is how do we actually call a RESTful API? So there's this metadata, this information, these processes that we can invoke. How do, how do we do that? Right, um, and, and we'll go into conversations on how to do it without code, um, which, which is there are tons of facilities out there that will allow you to test out workflows. Say you're, you're whiteboarding your workflow, you want to prove it out without actually writing code. There are tools out there to, to help you to do that. We'll also obviously talk about how to do it with code. Um, then we'll talk about writing code. So a simple form of writing code in order to call a RESTful API. Uh, we'll talk about that briefly, and, and then finally, and it's, it tends to be the larger topic, <coughs> pardon me, um, but, but we'll talk about more advanced forms of writing code. So we're going to go into uh, CICD, um, the definitions of those, um, some best practices, uh, and, 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 and a very high-level view of where you can go with this type of development. So let's talk about authentication for a little bit. As I said before, um, there, there, there are two forms of authentication that we will be going over in this discussion. Um, there's there's the, uh, the, the basic authentication and, and token-based. So let's dive right into it. So um, the slide has a bunch of information on it. It's, it's, it's very high level, um, but it essentially sums up the, the, the purpose or, or the, the meaning of basic authentication. And there, there are actually needs or, or, or circumstances where I favor this over token-based authentication. And after we discuss both of them, we'll kind of, I'll, I'll kind of shoot out my, my opinions on, on both of them. Um, you, you see a bunch of Ruby code in front of you, um, but let's, let's just kind of blind our eye to that for the moment and, and talk about the bullet points here. So basic authentication uh, will allow you to maintain uh, a connection to a REST data source. And essentially what that means is you, with basic auth, you're, you're passing your credentials every time that you submit a request to the endpoint, right? So, and in contrast, token, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, it doesn't do that, right? So, so you, you essentially pass your credentials once. And, and you'll find some security guys that, that kind of aren't keen on that. Um, other security guys are uh, obviously both sides of the spectrum, so they kind of feel that that is the way to do things and just make sure everything's encrypted properly, right? So it, it, you can support a long-running process using basic authentication. And, and the simple reason for that is that a, a token times out. Um, some, some places have uh, configurable timeframes, like a, a, you can specify how long you want a token to last or a session identifier. Um, and in other cases, they, they kind of hard code and they say, hey, you have 30 minutes to use that token uh, in the case of like a, a managed service or something like that. And, and then you have to refresh the token or re-authenticate in order to get a new token to continue your workflows. Um, and in, in basic authentication, it essentially takes a, uh, a concatenation of the username and password and passes it as a base64 uh, string, which is not hard to uh, to figure out um, if if you know it's passing a base sixty four string, so that's why the 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 important thing is to um, make sure you're running over a secure connection. So make sure your your SSL or TLS 
um, which is the new favorite thing, um, and 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 make sure that that transmission is secure. So diving into this code sample, and this is actually a, a, a piece of code that that is from one of one of one of the frameworks that I wrote that that kind of um, acts as the ma the main framework that I develop upon when I put new use cases into uh, the rubric repertoire, right? Um, so this is used all the time. Essentially what I'm doing here is um, I'm defining my connection. I, I favor the Faraday libraries, and this is Ruby code, I've probably said that before, um, but um, I tend to write in whatever language fits the situation. So um, in, in Ruby, I tend to prefer the Faraday request module because it's very, it's very robust. It'll, handle pretty much anything you want to do. Um, so, so essentially what I do is I, I specify the basic auth variables, uh, which consist of username and password. Um, pretty, pretty plain and simple. Um, I then specify the header as authorization. Now, in, in my lab, I don't have actual SSL certs uh, on, on my endpoint. So I, kinda, I turn off the verification. Um, so that it can access that. You might have that issue with, um, you know, hidden vSAN or, or any number of things. Um, you might have that same issue. You have the ability, if you know your environment is otherwise secure, um, you, you can safely set that to false. It's probably not the best thing to do in any case, um, but, but it'll certainly, uh, certainly get, you, get you through it. Um, then I'm actually launching the connection. So the response equals connection.get. Um, and a space P, which is actually my endpoint that I'm going to hit, um, it, it, it's actually making the call. So that's lighting the call. Uh, so I get a response back. So when that response comes back, I need to decipher what it is, what, what, what we're doing, uh, what, the, what the messages are that comes back, is it valid, is it not? Um, so, so I do that. I do that here as well. But all the while, the important thing is with basic authentication, um, you're passing the username and password every time you make a call. It's not once, it's not you know every once in a while, it's, it's every hit. And, and when you get involved in complex workflows that have many operations going on, you might have it threaded, um, so on and so forth, um, it, it can be, it, you can be passing that username and password over, over the wire thousands of times a second um, very easily. So moving on to token authentication. And this is more of a fair example um, because this actually displays just the obtaining of the token or, or the session ID, however you want to uh, term that. So with token authentication, um, it, you're essentially telling your your REST source that you want to do some stuff, right? So it's it's a pretty simple concept. You're you're authenticating uh, once in the beginning of of your workflow, or your session, or however you manage your token refreshes um, is is how many times you're going to actually pass the credentials over the wire. Um, so it serves as a temporary connection, and what what I what I mean by that is that um, like I said, on when I was on the basic slide, you you have a time frame that you need to complete your workflow. Um, if if your workflow is long running, there's a good chance that your token is going to expire, and you're going to be denied access to continue that workflow. So, 
you kind of have to you have to choose wisely on on how you want to handle it because you can have a lot more code um, if you use token authentication in order to institute a refresh of that token, um, which, which might not be the right thing for your use case. Um, so, so obviously you need to you need to refresh a token if if it does expire and your workflow is not complete. Um, I've seen this in cases where um, specifically uh, data moving. So so. It, in in one of the workflows that I'll go into briefly later in, later in the conversation is is dependent on a uh, vMotion, a storage vMotion. Depending on the infrastructure, storage vMotions can not be so nice, right? Um, so so essentially, what needs to happen is um, at some point um, during or after that that, that vMotion, you might need to refresh uh, a token. That that uh, that a a workflow after that vMotion depends on. So um, so that's kind of the thing that you need to look out for um, because you can have a lot of failures and it's just it's it's as simple as that um, because your your token required a refresh. Um, and and the really the really good thing about token off is you're only passing your credentials uh, at the beginning of the session, which which really kind of puts a lot of minds at ease. Um, although, like I said, on the basic slide, if, uh, if you have that encryption end-to-end, -end, it, it, it shouldn't be a, a huge concern. Certainly on, you know, on infrastructure, on internal infrastructure, on-premises, um, or, or VP, you know, a VPN, VPC, um, that, that should be, it should be fine to run just basic auth. Um, but you might have use cases where you're hitting an external endpoint, that is not uh, under your control, and, and they require token authentication. So, so those are two of the major uh, use cases for authentication. So, so I'm going to segue into kind of like basic. I, I, I've heard about APIs, RESTful APIs specifically, um, but I don't know how to code, or I want to learn how to code. Where do I start? And that's a that's a question I get all the time, um, both inside my organization. And, and outside, and it's really hard, right? So uh, I, I've, I, I'm sure a lot of, I'm not the only one that's been doing this for, you know, 20, 25 years. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to take 20, 25 years or even two or five years and condense it into a, 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 a quick and effective conversation that empowers someone else to do what you do. Um, it, it's 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 not an easy thing to do. Um, I will say though that there are so many tools out there. It's not hard, um, and and obviously um, th there's a lot of information on this slide too. Um, but all of these tools make it really easy to minimally understand how to what, what an API what an API is. Uh, how do I use it? What, what what's it do for me? Um, so, quick drilling down this slide. Um, yeah, yes, you can. You can educate yourself on a new technology. You can develop and improve workflows prior to coding, like the whiteboarding example that I mentioned earlier. Um, and and you can you can document that stuff for for distributed coding. So so there are a lot of tools available to that that you can leverage that I leverage every day. Um, that allow more agile development. I can, I can um, you know, 
tablecloth or napkin or whiteboard or workflow and pull it apart and, and make sense out of it and prove it out before actually writing code. And a couple of them are really, really popular, right? Postman is very possible, uh, very popular. It's, it's simply an HTTPS-based. Um, it, it, it allows you to make outbound calls and view the results. Um, and you can use it to access any API. Um, I think I have it on a screen really here, right here if we break out of there. Um, let's see here. Yeah, here it is. Um, so this is actually hitting the rubric API and, and getting some information on VM. So the endpoint that I'm hitting, VMware slash VM, is showing me a bunch of metadata that, that I have for particular, uh, for, for actually all virtual machines that are backed up in our lab environment. Um, so I can go in and, and do things like, let's uh, get more information on a VM. So this is, I'm not coding, I'm just copying stuff between uh, between endpoints. So if I if I do that, I'm now diving into this particular VM and getting more details. What host it's running on, what path it is in VMware, um, both infrastructure and folder path. Um, things like snapshots. So when was it? When when did we make backups? Um, data like that becomes available, and you you can bench this and and prove out theories well before you even touch a bit of code. And another, another item that I mentioned here, uh, Swagger and uh, Apogee is another one and IO Docs is probably, I don't know if IO Docs is very popular anymore. Um, I'm not quite sure. Um, but Swagger IO is definitely, the, the Open API standard is definitely leaning towards that as a documentation source, right? So we have, we have a similar interface to that. And there, there are hybrids out there, there are custom ones. Uh, VMware's uh, new uh, API browser is kinda, it's way better than the old one. Um, and, and hopefully they, they continue to progress to make their, uh, their API extremely useful. Um, so Swagger allows you to do very similar things to Postman, except uh, you have all the endpoints there, so you can actually drill down and make, this is essentially the same call that I was making uh, within Postman, but it's all there, it's on the screen. We can see what's going on. And then if we auth if we authenticate, um, we, we can actually hit this try it out button, which is really cool because it lays everything out for you. It tells you, um, if you run this curl command, you're gonna get this information. So you can easily, um, prove these theories out, these workflows out, well before you develop any code. So you're saying right? curl is the best thing ever? I, I, I'm not gonna say that. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 whatever, I mean, it, it's, it's, it depends on what tools you're comfortable using. You can certainly use curl and pipe a bunch of stuff all over the place and, you know, bash script to, to your heart's content. Um, it's, it's not necessarily the way that I'd go, um, but it's definitely possible. It's something you can do. So we right. had a, we had a question about authentication. Yeah. And uh, so someone asked, is there something similar to like an SSH key that can be used safely over the internet instead of using like a username and password? Yeah. So that's what I was getting to. A lot of like third party um, SaaS products, um, they'll they'll lean towards things like API keys. Right. So that's that's a long. I'm not sure what they're using to encrypt that string yet. Um, but but it's essentially an ID 
that you configure in the, the said SaaS provider's interface to provide you with an API key to connect to that API. Cool. So it's, it's, it's kind of similar to, um, to token base, but it's longer living. Cool. That makes sense. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. All right. So that's, uh, that's my swagger spiel. Let's go, uh, let's go back to this little thing that we threw together. Um, and obviously, you know, uh, to Rebecca's point, you can just use curl if, um, if that's, if that's what you want to do, right? Um, most of the Swagger interfaces will have all those commands available and you'll, you'll be able to test them out and, and it'll be fun stuff. Um, so moving on for that, we went over the Swagger interface. We went over Postman. Uh, all right. So calling a RESTful API. Um, it's really, so I divided this into two sections. Um, let, let's preface it with, um, the, the kinds of things that we can call it with, right? So it, there's not a huge amount of requirements to a REST API because it's, it's, it's very, it, it's, it's predictable. It's, it's something that's documented. It's something that, you know, in, in a controlled uh, continuous deployment environment, it's something that wouldn't ordinarily change. Um, so it's something you can depend on. So that being said, you can write in anything that allows an outbound REST call. Um, even some things that don't, if, if you, if you chose to write, uh, you know, a bash script to run, <coughs> pardon me, to run a series of workflows, you could, you could absolutely do that and leverage curl, um, to, to, to act as your, your request library. Um, that, that's something that, that, that I've seen out there. Um, it's not as structured as other, other things. Um, but, but. For sure, it's 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 pretty much it's literally pick your poison. So I I, I tend to write in anything that the use case requires, um, but you don't have to do that. If Ruby is your favorite language, you can do everything in Ruby. Um, if PowerShell is your favorite language, you can do everything in PowerShell. Um, I'm kind of on the debate of whether PowerShell is a language. Yet. Um, I kind of I, I, I kind of I probably just shot myself in the foot. Um, but, but yeah, you, you can essentially use anything that allows you to trigger an outbound request, um, an outbound uh, REST request, um, and design your workflows in those languages, or several at the same time. Haters going to hate, man, with PowerShell? Mm -mm. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm probably going to put my foot in my mouth a couple of times. Um, when, I, when I hope it's like the most quoted like clickbait from this presentation. <laughs> uh, all right. So, so this is really a, a, a picture of, of what, or a very basic representat representation of what, what a RESTful API can, can offer you in terms of functionality, right? So on the right, we have some RESTful APIs. It doesn't matter what they are. They're, they're just RESTful APIs. So we have uh, our own rubric RESTful API. We have uh, vCenter, obviously, and, and the whole V stack, uh, figuratively. Um, and then I threw a question mark in there because it, it really don't matter. It can be AWS. It can be whatever, whatever you use, um, in your business, uh, process in your, in your technology stack. Um, so having that restful API really enables all of the business logic to be built in, um, in any of those eight solutions for sure. Um, and tons more. 
So my my team has has been able to develop integrations between RESTful APIs um, for Puppet, for Chef, for Ansible, for ServiceNow, um, for VRA, obviously, for for PowerShell. Um, actually, that's Chris Wall's module. Um, it, within Ruby, within Python, um, we we pretty much go out there and and you know based on the client environment, um, we we kind of assess what the tool set is and and how we need to build uh, how we need to develop the solution, whether it's JavaScript or uh, or Python or Ruby or whatever language the, uh, the the business logic tool, whether it's configuration management or or service portal. We we kind of play into uh, the the needs of that specific uh, specific topic or or specific business case, um, and it's really cool because with any of those items on the business logic side, with ServiceNow, if you have a mid server on premises, we we can do some really cool stuff with that, um, provided that we have the endpoints to hit to provide that functionality. So this this is what I was getting at when I said that this is kind of hard. So it's it's really hard to say writing code and then simple, um, and and I that's my nature. I I tend to overcomplicate things, um, uh, so so it's really hard to do. Um, so I kind of threw it out like this, right? So obviously you want to authenticate because you have to you have to identify yourself, right? And 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 because people, you know, everyone's cool and all, but um, not that cool. Um, so, so they're going to want to know who you are and if you're allowed to get stuff, and then uh, then you can get something. Um, so essentially, uh, what that means is I'm, I'm making a direct call and I'm expecting some form of data back. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to use this as a demonstration of that process happening. So I have a bit of Ruby code that 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 I kind of base uh, some of the frameworks depending on the environment. Um, that, that I that I prove out, um, it, it's kind of like a basic framework. So it handles the authentication, it handles um, session management. I actually have um, the option to specify um, within this code whether I want to use token-based authentication or uh, or, or basic, um, because I found the need to, um, to that having it dynamic, having the option to use either basic or token, can get me out of a lot of jams. Um, so, so I have that exercise in here. I can, I can kind of show that code at some point, if uh, time permitting. Um, but essentially, what I'm doing here is, and I'll, I'll, I'll show the code in a moment, is saying, hey, let's go to this RESTful API and get some information. So I'm hitting an endpoint. In this case, I believe it is uh, internal stat storage or something like that on on our our client. So our own. RESTful API at Rubrik. And essentially what that's passing me back is the latest um, metrics that it has regarding space available on our unit. Um, and I can go and do uh, time series stats. I actually don't remember how I did that. So I'm gonna go like this, because uh, help is fun. Um, and if I say metric uh, runway, I can see how many days are left on the device and, 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 and various other tidbits. Uh, you know, time-based stats, that kind of thing. If you want to integrate with your monitoring system, um, you you can run something like uh, like if I go, uh, let's go here, let's go metric, let's go IO stat, 
and uh, we'll say one D is in one day, and I think this will work. Um, so that spits out um, uh, in a complex hash of various timing points and what the I/O was or the, the the input and output metrics were on the device at those times, so that you can you can go and integrate with your monitoring system, have it pull this command, and do the math to create all the pretty graphs and stuff that everyone wants. Um, so essentially to make that call, I'll go into the actual code. Um, I have a bunch of requirements, and we'll go into complex workflows um, in a little bit, but if I go to metrics, um, it's they're very simple calls. So I'm specifying the set of credentials that I'm using, um, which in this case is rubric credentials, and I have uh, essentially a function that kind of uh, breaks out all of the uh, various types of calls that we can do, um, whether whether it's a get, a post, a, a delete, a, a patch, whatever it is, and and it it kind of it handles all that process. I'm a firm believer in code once, code right, um, and, and not a fan of duplicate code. I think I've mentioned this to Rebecca like three times over the past day, um, and 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 it's really. It really helps you out because you don't have to change this get from API function ever. Um, and you can just throw endpoints at this and you get a data set back and, and it really becomes a, a, a simple matter of gluing the pieces together, right? So that's what I have for simple. And it doesn't look that simple, um, but but that's, that's the best I got on. So, Okay, so here's where it gets um, infinitely more complicated based on what your, your, your use case is, right? So um, writing code in advanced fashion, I kind of uh, gave you a taste of, uh, you know, code gets busy, it gets, you know, when you get use cases, if you have a single code base, it kind of, it, it can complicate things. So um, there are tools out there to help you to simplify this. And, and we're gonna go over the following topics in order to kind of give you a primer on what's out there and what they are, right? So I have five points that I like to keep in mind when I write something. Um, and, and, and they're just things that you need to be aware of. Um, it, it, it doesn't matter which way to go. Um, if, if you go, uh, distributed version control is definitely something that I would recommend. Um, because it's way cooler um, and, and it's very mature and, and it's something that enables a layer of functionality that doesn't necessarily exist or it requires more management to exist if you have a, a central uh, version control system. Um, distributed simply means that it's, it's normally hosted elsewhere. It's, it's a place that you can, uh, you can hit when you're on the internet but if you're not on the internet, you can still develop. You still have the code locally on your machine. And, and obviously, uh, Git is a, a prime example of that. Um, and if you loop in something like, uh, like GitHub, uh, which is a very popular um, repository, um, there are others. There's Bitbucket. There, um, I think uh, uh, there, there are a handful of, of them out there, but, but Bitbucket and GitHub are by far the, the more popular ones. Um, and you can tack on functionality on top of it once your code is checked in. We'll go into that briefly in a little bit. So 
another important aspect, and, and it's very easy to get caught on this one because it's really easy to hack out code and just have no real structure to it, right? Um, and, and that's kind of what leads to my the pet peeve that I, I kind of mentioned earlier, which is duplicate code. Um, and I'll probably mention it three times on, on this discussion as well. Um, so monolithic coding is, is the act of, um, yeah, in its basic form, it's I have one file that does everything. And when, when something breaks, everything's broken, um, which is not cool. Um, and so we'll go into some details on that, some pros and cons between monolithic versus uh, and dependency chaining, which is kind of just function, functioning things out or classing them out, however you decide to do it for your use case. Uh, we'll take a quick look at workflows and pipes, uh, as well as error handling, which is obviously an important thing. Um, and, and then we'll take a, take a, just a rough view into CI and CD, um, actually both CDs, because there are two CDs. Um, we'll look at those, uh, those models and, and kind of how they play into uh, your use of RESTful APIs. So version control, right? So central, uh, I kind of <laughs> kind of did a high level of it. Um, this, this tends to give a, a slight bit more of detail. Um, that, that tends to be useful in selecting how you're going to manage your code. So central, centralized version control is, is something that's, it, 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 it tends to be a little old school at this point in time. Um, I'm, I'm not, I don't use it anywhere, um, but it's something to be aware of. Um, if, if it's in your environment, if it's, if it's in, if, if you have clients uh, and it's in their environment, it's something that you should be aware of. Um, and typically, although some of the legacy central uh, version control systems, um, they, they've kind of added some distributed functionality to their, to their software, um, which is really cool. Um, but by and large, uh, I would, I would recommend going distributed. Um, the, the reasons are, pretty obvious, right? So um, it's, it's very simple to do a git pull and get the latest code and then hop on an airplane and continue writing code. Um, it's, 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 it's something that's very, uh, very mature. There are a lot of uh, add-on functionalities that you can, you can put on it to, to invoke testing. Um, Travis is a fine example of that. Um, and I can actually show you, yeah, I, I probably have it here actually. Uh, let me see if I still have it up. Um, yeah, so here's a, here's a sample of a puppet module, um, that, that we have, uh, within rubric. So, so it essentially instantiates a box, uh, a VM, uh, to, to allow me to run testing. Uh, this particular testing is based on the RSpec, uh, framework, which is with break spec, which is pretty well standard. Um, and this particular text test just runs, uh, runs a lint against the code, um, but I have other ones that actually go in and, and run unit tests on, 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 on all of the aspects of, of, of code. So going back here, um, obviously these are the three major um, distributed uh, version control systems and, and uh, they're Git, Mercurial, and Perforce um, gets by and large the leader. Um, I I have a another deck that I did with actual numbers of 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 the 
the repos on on these various systems and git just blows everything else out of water sorry github blows everything else out of water um down here so nope jumped ahead so obviously the repositories you can use wherever you want a lot of them a lot of them support multiple um types of version control systems um but but they're obviously the big names are github bitbucket sourceforge um sourceforge i'm not sure if they support git yet um but but i'm sure they'll get there as well so monolithic or dependency change so um so it's really it's easy to hack something out like i said in monolithic form it's really easy to start a set of code because you you see it all on screen and and uh you, you can quickly um quickly get something done and everyone wants to get something done um the 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 bad parts of it are um yeah i we can't collaborate unless you're working on my machine with me and that's never really much fun um the code base tends to get really ugly um, because it's just you. It's there's no, you know, no no one's over your back checking what you're doing. Um, it's it's your writing and and yours alone. So so anyone else who looks at it, unless you're you have impeccable uh, programming skill, they could get confused. I mean, there there are cases in in, in the past where I've actually you know I had a bad day or whatever, and I code in French. Um, and and that kind of irritated some people so so it's really it's it's really not uh it's not ideal when you get into larger projects larger integrations um where where there are many workflows that quite possibly many people might be working on um and no one wants to monkey patch i mean it's really hard to say hey i have this really vital piece of software that's my junk that is about two thousand lines of code in one file and I forgot to, you know, I, I forgot to put a quote in. Um, it, it's 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 not cool to see things like that break. Um, so so obviously I don't lean towards the monolithic side. Um, in in the past it had been something you know when I hack something out really quick. It's not a long workflow. Uh, it it might be okay, but by and large I would definitely go with something um, something with dependencies uh, built into it. So. The obvious pros to dependency chains are everything that monolithic is not, right? So we can split the workload amongst the team. So I, I can be working on, you know, storage of emotions or some particular process. And then another person can be working on, maybe I have the same set of code that's doing some other VMware uh, hackery or, 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 you know, running a backup or some any other process that might need to happen at the same time. If I was agile and I had a team of developers, um, it would be relatively easy based on these dependency chains to split the work up amongst the team and either uh, build that into our CI workflow um, as rigid splits based on branching um, or, or not, but, but we would have the ability to work on things separately. Um, modules are independent. Um, so, so that's a really cool thing, right? So the point is if, if a module is broken and your code, <coughs> a portion of your code doesn't call that module, that piece of code is going to run just fine. Um, when, when your, when your main framework is, is, uh, reliant or dependent on a module that is broken, um, 
it, 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 it'll probably break. Um, but through logging and, 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 you know, just analyzing the command line, um, you, you can relatively easily uh, determine which module that is and, and pinpoint your problem pretty quickly. Um, and obviously, I probably should have had those two reversed uh, in the opposite order, um, but uh, unit integration and regression testing is really, is really the key. When you have a lot of hands in the pot, um, scrutiny is pro. I mean, you, you want to, and we'll go into that in, in a little more detail shortly, but you absolutely want to scrutinize code. Um, the con is long, longer to first iteration. It'll take a little while longer to get things organized. Um, and it's not simple for new developers. Um, it's a culture thing. It's, it's, it's something that needs to be, uh, needs to be handled uh, gently. Yep. So workflows and pipes. This is, this is really where it gets exciting, right? So now you, you know how to connect to an API. You, you, you can get some stuff. Um, what do I do now? Um, and this can get really, really complicated. This is where my head just goes nuts. So, so I, I, several times today where DevOps, uh, DevOps stays in Detroit, um, I've had conversations with folks that, you know, I've never met before. And we get into discussing their environments and the possibilities of what, what our company can bring to the table. And right away, my gears start turning to the most complex, complex use cases based on the conversation. And a lot of times it leads to, you know, we're sitting there for 15, 20 minutes having this conversation. Um, so, so in short, the workflows and pipes enable you to perform a sequence of many API calls to achieve a goal or an end state. Um, and I, I say this in, in this slide and the next slide, you have to ensure that you're using all the tools in your toolbox. Um, I mean, even if, 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 if you have equipment or um, SaaS systems or, or whatever the case may be, leverage everything you have in terms of APIs. Integrate, integrate, integrate. Um, because it makes life so much better and firefights are less and, and, and everyone's just happy at the end of the day. Um, so that's a basic, um, the basic premise of workflows and pipes. So I'm going to show you a little, uh, uh, this, this is kind of um, one, of a, uh, one of the recent use cases um, within a rubric of a workflow that um, <laughs> I was somewhat challenged with, um, but, but we got it done and it worked really well. Um, and in this case, we, we had a client come to us and say, hey, um, we, we used to swing one in order to uh, move VMs from vCenter 5.5 to 6.5. Um, but, but that didn't go so good last time we did it. Um, and they wound up losing some VMs, which is not, not a good uh, thing to happen when you, ha when you have an agile um, deadline, when you, when, when you have to get things migrated. And we were talking in the number of tens of thousands of VMs that they needed to uh, migrate from vCenter 5.5 to 6.5. So essentially all of the items uh, underneath the arrows are, are operations that we built, that we built the workflow for um, to happen autonomously. Um, and the, the good thing about with the rubric is that we can minimize downtime. If we leverage our instant recovery feature, we're essentially um, re eliminating the risk of a swing run and we're enabling some other functionality here. Like, you know, you're, you're gonna have a, a two minute downtime, is that okay? Um, if you have a machine that takes a little while to, to boot up, it might be slightly longer. 
Um, so, so the end result, and I can give you a quick look at this. I don't, I don't know, Rebecca, I'm probably um, wanting to go into demos shortly. Um, so I can go into a quick code view of what that workflow looks like. And it's based on this same framework. Um, it, it, it really lets me um, develop really fast. Um, so if I go into lib, I'll see, just trying to cast myself up. Um, so I have some threading functionality in the, the core of, of this particular application. Um, so in rubric.rb, <clears throat> I actually leveraged the celluloid uh, suite uh, to, to inhibit the threading. And the reason I chose that particular thing instead of native OS threading was because I wanted the, the, um, the customer to be able to run it on anything. Um, and celluloid is very, um, very cross-platform effective. It's very portable. Um, so you notice that I call the subclass of celluloid here because I reference some functions um, that, that, are, that are within celluloid or some variables rather. Um, so you'll see, it, uh, I kind of marked this up so that it really kind of, let me see if I can reduce this slightly so I get, to make the window bigger. Um, yeah, don't quite make it, but that's okay. So I kind of marked this up. There, there's some code in there that I kind of took out of the loop, but for the most part, we can walk through the entire workflow. So essentially what I'm doing here is I'm marking the start of the workflow. I'm going in, I'm getting, uh, I'm refreshing the vCenter that said VM is on. Um, I actually passed the, the VMs in this, the VM object uh, array is, are the actual details on the particular VM that I'm migrating. So I'll do one at a time, um, but I have a layer of abstraction above this that allows you to thread it to whatever uh, arbitrary number you want to set it to. I mean, obviously you want it to be a realistic number. Um, I think in the case of the, the, the actual run of this code, uh, we, we had it either to eight or 16 at a time. So it was, it was pretty, pretty rapid. Um, you, see, you see right in, uh, right in this line, uh, we're actually kicking off uh, an API call. Um, so I'm going, I'm, I'm getting the IDs of the vCenters, uh, and for each of them, I'm gonna go in and refresh them. Um, and that's essentially, that's essentially what I'm gonna do in this line here, which is another API call. Um, so essentially there, I'm getting uh, the status of a vCenter refresh, um, and I'll, I'll confirm that and, and, and check it from time to time until it succeeded. So after that vCenter is refreshed, um, I'm gonna shut down the VM and monitor it till completion. Now I'm not gonna go into details on the VMware calls. I'm essentially leveraging uh, RBV Mummy. Uh, there, there's one for Python. It's a, it's a similar um, uh, third-party integration with the VMware SDK stack. Um, and and it's, it's, it's a fairly powerful uh, library uh, in, in lieu of the, the actual VMware API uh, coming up to a more acceptable level. Um, and, and, and obviously this was vCenter 5.5, so I couldn't even use that in this case. So I stuck with the, 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 that library in order to get this done. So I shut it down, monitor it till it's complete. Um, and that's actually in another function that I broke out um, into another actual file. I, I disconnect the CDs, that's actually a lie. What I do, I, I set it to client side device. Um, I don't disconnect it um, because that, that actually doesn't do it. And, and, and the reason for that is later in the process, I actually vMotion 
or, or I can V-motion uh, back to production storage off of our rubric when we recover it. So I removed some custom configs. In the case of this, this client, they were using IBM's um, Cloud Orchestrator, which is, which is kind of a derivative of OpenStax stuff. Um, and, and they didn't, they, they chose not to use it anymore. So we needed to go and remove that in, in vCenter, you see the managed by nonsense. So, so we kind of wrote something in here to remove that, um, because that extension would not be available on 6.5. Um, and if it's not available on 6.5, then we can't light up the VMs. So then I'll go and snapshot the VM and monitor it until it's complete. So essentially what I'm doing here is more API calls. Um, so, so I, I have, I have the ID of the machine in, in the VM object hash. Um, I have the name of the machine in the VM object hash, and then I'll, I'll go and request this find VM item by name function actually launches a REST call that, that is more generalized. It says, hey, I just want this one piece of data on, on a VM name. So search for the VM on rubric in this case and, and send me back the ID of that VM. I'll then, uh, figure out its SLA domain. So in, the, in rubric, if you're not familiar with that, we have this concept of SLA domains, which is kind of the new, uh, the new, you can call it protection policy. Um, in, in legacy products, it's, it's uh, kind of a, a backup job or, or however you categorize your, your metrics or, or your variables, um, how often things are backed up, how long we keep them for in, in whatever your backup solution is. Um, so we call it an SLA domain because we, we tend to simplify uh, that type of thing in, in our solution. Um, so I'll go in and I'll say, hey, um, look at this SLA hash, which, by the way, I do in the main script, which is a, a hash of uh, SLA names and IDs, and see what that maps to in terms of this VM. So I, I kind of hang on to what the SLA domain is. Um, then I'll actually go in and request the machine be snapshot, which is uh, essentially a CBT-based incremental. Um, on a on a you know smaller medium use machine, it'll take about two minutes to complete that. I'll monitor that through to completion, um, and and that's what you see here. While it, while it's not succeeded, I'll keep pinging it for status. Um, if it's uh, if it's not succeeded, um, it, it'll it'll spit out an error. Um, then I go and retrieve the ID of that snapshot that I just created. So um, the, the end game is to um, recover this machine to the 6.5 stack. Um, so essentially here I'm saying, hey, I just backed it up. Let me know what the ID of that back that snapshot was so that I can go and subsequently, and you'll see that a couple lines down, um, launch that instant recovery, which which is essentially the rubric saying, hey, let's uh, you know take this VM, throw it on an NFS export, and share it out as a data store to the vCenter server. In this case, the vCenter 6.5 server. So essentially what I do here, um, this is a little bit confusing. It's definitely, there's, there's zero RESTful API, but, but, it, but it's, a, it's a little bit of craftsmanship that, um, that goes through all of the VMware hosts and figures out while that VM is preparing itself, um, which ones are in maintenance mode. So obviously maintenance mode, like yeah, you can promise that things are not gonna be in maintenance mode, um, but if you have 100 ASXi hosts, 
things happen, right? So we built something in line to check them for maintenance mode and deduce them from, from the hash of available VMware hosts that we can instantly recover to with the rubric. Um, so once that's done, actually this line, my H, is actually selecting. So sample is a, 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 a an object in, in Ruby that allows you to uh, essentially randomize which of the array elements you're, you're going to present. Um, so in this case, I grab one sample um, from, from, from the HL array, um, which essentially just telling me, hey, I've I selected this host to recover uh, VM2. So then I'll go in and actually kick off the instant recovery, which is we're back to rest, which is kind of cool. Um, so essentially, I'll take all that information that I gathered up the chain, and that's why workflow and 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 in PowerShell and obviously in in Linux, there's piping too. I think that it's taken a bit of a turn in in PowerShell in the way it's used. Um, but those are those are the things that we really accomplish. We're really getting information to perform, uh, you know, following workflows. So what comes after getting all that information? So we just got a bunch of information to initiate uh, what we call an instant recovery, um, which is that, you know, exporting the VM over over NFS as a data store and, and launching machine, uh, launch, launching that VM on a, um, on an ES6i host uh, and, you know, having it visible in vCenter and all. So essentially, I, I do that same thing. So I, I launched the instant recovery. Um, you'll see here you have the latest snapshot uh, right here um, and then just slash instant recovery. So, so I'm, I'm sending a, a post request um, to it. And I'm, I'm specifying a couple things here, right? So it's really hard to read. Um, but here I'm specifying uh, the, the name of the machine. And here I'm specifying uh, what I randomly sampled from that large host array that we had already de deduced um, maintenance mode uh, hosts from. I'm, I'm taking that machine ID and, and saying, hey, instant recover it to that particular hypervisor server. Um, I'll kick that off. The rubric will do its thing, and 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 I'll monitor that until it's complete. So this is a bunch of stuff that uh, I wasn't a fan of, um, and we have to change the workflow on the fly um, to match their environment. Um, but essentially, what happened here was um, we we had a couple of options. We could either start the VM as it was instantly recovered, and then vMotion it to the production storage. Um, and you see that's actually simplified. Um, we, we essentially have a set of creds for the 6.5 vCenter or 2 vCenter. And we send it that VM object, and it'll go and migrate it to the, the data store that was defined in, in the feeder CSV, um, which is essentially a, a CSV file of, of uh, what, what machines they wanted to move in a particular batch. and and, and what uh, port groups and, and data stores they were they were going to land on, um, and we set all that stuff dynamically. So what I what we found out when we actually implemented this is that there was a there was an issue with um, the deployment that uh, didn't allow me to mass uh, mass instant recovery mass instant recovery, and we we're, we're not sure. We we think it was tied to uh, the landing storage. Um, the, we're not quite sure. Where that was, we resolved the issue, um, but but that's actually being caused 
now. Um, so I actually, when we went live with this and tested it, we, we used our export method. So it was actually a data copy um, from the rubric to the, to the ESXi cluster, um, the relevant data store, and then we let the machine up. Um, the good news is we test all this, we can leverage both pieces of functionality, and we, we can likely hit, um, I'm, I'm gonna throw a number out there, and I'm gonna hold myself to it, but over the course of a weekend, we, we can do well over a 1,000 uh, machines, migrate a 1,000 machines between those two systems. Um, with minimal downtime. It depends on the use case, um, but we can specify things like, um, you know, use export for smaller VMs because they're not going to take a long time anyway, and then use live mount for the multi-terabyte VMs that we want running faster than the files are going to copy. Um, so we can do that kind of thing. So we're running tight on time, Rebecca. How are we doing? Yeah, I mean... Uh... Take take your time. I know you don't have that many slides left, so. Yeah, there are a few. I can I can kind of breeze through this stuff. I do want to show um, the specific VRA integrations um, that we have um, because that's really cool stuff. Um, but yeah, let's breeze through this stuff. So obviously, error handling is is key. I think the more information that you provide, and I'm not talking about million line log files daily, um, but very focused messages, right? So if you're expecting something back and you get something else, you should really know that. Um, and then you should make decisions based on it. Maybe it's an error that doesn't really matter. Maybe maybe the process still runs okay. Um, and, and you can make judgment calls on how to continue the workflow or retry it or give up. Um, there, there are definitely cases where uh, where maybe, maybe there's some network connectivity issue because um, it's always network. Um, and, and you can make those decisions, but you need to have the, the, the workflow in your code to, to be able to make the right decision. And obviously, log, log, log. I, I can't say it enough. If, if you have the information, you can go back and root cause and deduce what the actual issue might be. Um, I think I missed the slide. Yeah, I did. Um, so continuous integration and delivery deployment. Um, I don't think there are a lot of people who really know like the differences. It's really really an easy way to differentiate um, delivery and deployment, but people confuse the terms all the time. It's pretty funny. Um, so continuous integration is very much a front end thing, right? So uh, I stole uh, this thing from, I think it's from GitHub actually, um, this, this picture. And, and it really says it pretty nicely, right? So your green you can figure is your master branch. And all of the other colors are different people doing different things. Um, so, so the idea of CI is that everyone's contributing to the same code base. Um, so it's really good collaboration. And even more so, once it's put up on the repo of choice, um, in our case, GitHub, you can institute things like uh, some, some rudimentary testing or more detailed testing. If you want to do unit testing on every commit, um, you, you can do things like that. So continuous integration, it's good. Everyone should be doing it. Um, even, if it's, even if you're just a lone developer, um, you should definitely have a lot of the principles of, of continuous integration in, in place, or at least in your mindset. So the CDs. Uh, it's really, I don't know who I stole this. I'm really good at stealing pictures because I'm too lazy to do my own. Um, but, but 
the picture really really defines what they are right and they're, they're very close so continuous delivery is everything up until pushing the the red button you know um everything up until um actually pushing things to production um no matter which uh which it really doesn't matter how your deploying methods work um they're they're essentially mirrored between continuous delivery and continuous deployment it's it's the same thing um the 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 difference is when you get to pushing that red button. So, so continuous delivery does not um, doesn't include that. Whereas continuous deployment would include things like um, w whatever your deployment strategy is. So, if you do blue green, I don't know. I've heard, I've heard a million of them new ones every day. Um, rolling canary, um, which is more of a metered kind of test the waters before you push everything full production. Um, you can do that kind of thing. Um, and the most important thing on the slide is it's, it's, it's about continuous scrutiny, right? Um, you, you need to, the more you interrogate your code overall, the better the product is going to be. And, and, and the, the quicker and, and it, you know, the quicker you actually deploy that culture um, in, in your organization or in your, your personal coding style, um, you, you're going to find the product's going to be really good. Um, so yeah, I kind of I gave a little view of Ruby bits. Um, I think I'll, I'll probably skip the Cloud Bolt uh, so that we don't go too far over here. I appreciate everyone hanging out, um, but uh, but I do want to show the VR VRA VRO stuff because that's pretty cool, um, and and it, it's a lot of fun to to do that kind of thing, right? So I'm gonna find somewhere I have. Um, let me go here. Uh, I lied about that questions thing. I just clicked. So while you're so, logging in, uh, we had yeah. two, two, two things. First, uh, someone made a joke that they said their developers could not even spell CICD. <laughs> and, and then uh, someone asked if you can go over what uh, JSON parse does. So JSON parse essentially um, takes, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Let me do that real quick. Um, sorry for not being overly descriptive on that. So essentially JSON parse, parse takes out, uh, we're, we're gonna see it all over the place, um, but I think we were looking at migrate for that. Oh, it's right there. I didn't even need to do that, but we'll do it anyway. Um, so JSON parse essentially takes the output or the result set from this particular, in this case, it'll take it from this particular um, API call and it'll, it'll It'll expect JSON back and translate it to to the native Ruby hash algorithm to, to the way the way Ruby hashes work, right? So um, so it's really just a translation uh, from JSON to native Ruby uh, Ruby hash. Um, the this exists in in most of the programming languages. It's very rare that you need to actually write a function to do it yourself. Um, this is actually an out-of-box um, gem that ex exists with the, the Ruby uh, installation. Does that answer the question? Hopefully. So far, no response. So go ahead and uh, okay. keep going. I'm going to assume that's, that, that's okay. Um, so this is our pretty standard kind of VRA deployment. 
um, within our lab at Rubric. Um, and you'll see, my icons aren't popping up, they're supposed to be pretty icons. Um, you'll see uh, a series of day two operations or actions uh, based on these machines. And and the the one that I really wanted to point out, obviously we can do things like have an end user do a, do a backup as self-service um, and monitor it through to completion. We'll know when it's done. Um, for instance, if a user uh, wants to patch their system, has that ability, so they want to make sure it's backed up prior to doing that, they can launch an on-demand. Um, it takes about a minute and a half um, because it's all CPT-based once again. And and then the user will know when, you know, by looking at their request log and refreshing that, they'll, they'll know when that snapshot's done and they can go and do their work. Um, other other functions that we offer um, are the ability for an end user to uh, select their own SLA domain. So if you have uh, you have uh, specific uh, levels of compliance for your backups, um, that onus or that risk or however you want to handle that um, or however you want to title that is is kind of put in the users uh, put in the users. Uh, it's their function. Um, so, so they'll need to make sure that they're compliant with their own policies um, instead of you managing a bunch of you know jobs. Um, live mount, uh, we can launch a uh, launch as a as an as a VM. Uh, we can launch any of the previously backed up versions of it. Um, it'll light it up off of network. It'll um, it'll be accessible through the vCenter console essentially. Um, but the cool thing, um, and I, I, I love showing this, uh, I love logging in and showing that, um, is we have this ability to, uh, much in the way that Mac OS has the, uh, the what do they call it, time, whatever, um, time machine uh, functionality, um, we, can, we can extend that and, uh, to, to the end users um, in much the same way. So it, it might not be as pretty because I did it instead of Apple. Um, but essentially what I can do is I can go and select a VM, go to instant recovery. Oh, my account's very cool. Um, and, and go and select a snapshot. So let's say a use cases, you know, ransomware attack Sunday night. Uh, come in Monday morning, find it as an end user. Um, and, and I'm scared. So essentially what this allow me to do is go back to last Friday's version of the machine. Um, and there are some business principles that we wrap around this. Um, so it's not a free-for-all. You can't do whatever you want, Mr. Customer or Mr. End User or however your support model works. Um, but you, they can go and select a snapshot. And then either you can leave these options or set them as business requirements. Uh, for instance, maybe you want to snapshot the current state of the machine so that you can go back and, and root cause uh, the issue. Maybe it's a bigger issue. It's connected to... A series of events that 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 you've noticed. Uh, I don't know whatever the use case might be. You'd have the option as a business to specify that the machine is backed up prior to being um, prior to being recovered. Um, and this will actually reach out to the uh, rubric to get. Uh, don't mind our silly naming here. Um, to get the list of SLA policies that you have defined for for your clients. Um, you might want to specify one specifically for root causing these issues and set all this statically. That's totally okay too. So that adds about a minute and a half to the process um, based on average CBT backups. Um, for higher utilization machines, obviously that's gonna be a little bit longer. 
Um, so then, then I uh, provide the option to actually launch the V motion. Um, so, so that's a simple checkbox. It's going to migrate it to wherever the original DevOps 1009 was located, whatever data store it was located on. And we can go and kick that off. So, so I'm actually going to launch that because that's really the last thing that I need to show. And then we can, we can kind of host a couple of questions or something. Um, so I'll go and launch that. And obviously, um, when, when the request is in, the user can, can kind of monitor it through uh, this interface. And this is obviously a lab, so excuse the number of failures that you see because if, if I don't fail, I don't succeed. Um, and, and we can see that it's actually recovering the machine already. It'll also tell the user when the machine is accessible um, and, and then they can go and log into said machine. Um, so don't mind my broken flash icon, uh, <clears throat> but you can see that, uh, that it actually, uh, power on 938, yep, that's correct time. Um, so it, it, it already has a machine powered on, so it's probably up already. Um, So you did all of this using JavaScript and VRO? Yeah, this is all JavaScript and VRO. We'll actually take a look at that real quick. I think that's it. Yeah, this is a workflow running out. This is one that I ran before to make sure my stuff wasn't broken. Um, so essentially, this is a VRO workflow. Um, it's You can see this particular recovery. Um, it, it, I hate when it does that. It's actually uh, monitoring the rubric instant recovery right now. Uh, which is why it keeps hopping to the uh, sub workflow here, um, where it's kind of pinging through the statuses. Uh, it actually makes a REST call up here and then makes decisions based on what the response is there. Then it kind of goes into it. It goes into a 10 second wait. Um, so that's what we're waiting on now to complete. Um, so essentially walking through the workflow really quickly. Um, oh, here we go. Now it's another sub workflow. Um, so, so it's essentially, uh, if, if I ask it to run the on-demand, I run a sub-workflow that runs the on-demand snapshot. Um, then I'll get some, I'll get the snapshot ID of that, uh, that particular backup, um, uh, the, the backup that's being requested to be recovered. Um, then I'll go through, you know, do you want to be motion to VM? <coughs> Pardon me. If you do, I'll grab the, I'll grab the uh, data store that it's currently residing on prior to instant recovery. Then I'll go and actually launch the incident recovery off rubric, monitor it to completion, which is the function that we were we were looking at before. Um, if I chose not to VM uh, to vMotion the, the machine, I'll just exit out. <clears throat> if I have chosen to vMotion the machine uh, uh, based on business principles or, or however that decision's uh, made, I'll go and disconnect uh, any CDs that might be mounted to the machine because. Emotion don't like that kind of thing. I'll actually like I, I I lied here too, like I did earlier. I set it to a client side device so that it eliminates that as an issue. Um, then I'll actually perform the V motion. So if we go back to the browser, um, we'll go to vCenter. We'll see it going. So there is. Um, so it's actually it's recovered the machine. <coughs> the machine is accessible um, by the end user, um, but but um, while I mean, there might be some slight performance implications while it's fee motioning, um, but um, by and large, the user is is good to go. And it's literally like, come in Monday morning, my machine's broken, 
and you know between fiddling with my kludgy interface and and executing the request uh, in five minutes they're up and running um and i think that that is all the content that i had uh rebecca do we have any other questions uh no tom do we have any questions on twitter that we've missed I'm not seeing any questions. There's a lot of good comments, uh, especially someone saying you're guaranteeing Batman or out a unicorn uh, in your <laughs> office if you adopt APIs. So I'm, I'm looking yeah. forward to that. I mean, it really, it really opens. It opens a huge amount of possibilities. Um, it, it really gets my gears going um, in ter in terms of things that we couldn't necessarily accomplish um, with, without a lot of kludgy, not nice code. Um, so, so yeah, yeah, it's, it's essentially that good. Uh, someone just a lot said, of thank yous yeah, for VRO. Yeah. Thanks for using VRO. Uh, so how did you code <laughs> French? I think that's an important question we all wanted to know. I can curse on this, right? Sorry. Um, sure. Why not? In French, of so course. Right? It was a, my, my wife is actually, a, a, she's a French national and actually she's a U.S. national too. Thank you. Um, so, so it, it was kind of like I went. I went to the to the school of hard knocks for learning French because, um, you know, I did the whole high school thing and and uh, and I was not the, that good at it then. Um, I'm certainly not much better at it now. Um, but writing it's kind of fun and confusing colleagues is one of my favorite sports. Um, although I've kind of I kind of moderate that more nowadays. I try and keep things cool, um, but but yeah, there were back in the Pearl days. There were there were cases where I, I'd actually write code in French because I had a bad day. So remind me not to upset you at work. Got it. Um, oh, I'm totally a different person. <laughs> I mean, yes, but I, I think I'm a different person. <laughs> cool. So uh, no other questions have popped up. So thank you very much for your time tonight, Pete, uh, and thank you for everybody who attended. Thanks for having me, guys.